those two passages, particularly the first but also the second. It would be helpful if you had John chapter 4 open or near you on your device or Bibles which are on the seats. Let me pray that God would help us as we reflect on these words. Heavenly Father, we do earnestly pray that you would give us insight into this passage, help us to learn from it and help it to change us in a helpful and positive way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I can't quite remember how the following ad goes, so I'll take a few liberties with it. You can get it scoring a try. You can get it eating a pie. You can get it changing a nappy. You can get it trying to keep your mother-in-law happy. You can get it working a plough. You can get it milking a cow. Matter of fact, I've got it right now. A hard-earned thirst needs a big cold beer. And the best cold beer is, well, this is not a commercial, so I won't bother mentioning the brand. But the beer in question was allegedly brewed especially for our harsh Australian climate. Or so the promotional line went. Now, there's one thing which beer commercials do well, uh, and often do very well, is that they can paint a picture of genuine thirst, someone who's been working hard out in the fields or on the tractor or in the factory or playing sport. They're thirsty, they want a drink. And you watch the ad and you think, boy, I really could, you know, use a drink of something or other. And then, obviously, they put their product as the suggested drink. But, you know, the idea of, you know, the thirst and quenching the Australian thirst, it can be quite evocative, I find. You see, thirst is actually a very powerful sensation, as we all know. We've all been thirsty. We've experienced it after a day's work, manual labour, working in the garden. We've been for a run. We've been to the gym, whatever. And usually our thirst is dealt with quite easily. We just get reach for a water bottle or turn on the tap or go to the fridge and problem solved. But it's not always quite as easy for everyone in the world. There are clearly parts of our world where water is a lot scarcer. The Australian outback, the African deserts, the arid climates of the Middle East. And there, thirst is not something rather which is just simply a little bit inconvenient. It can be more serious and in fact sometimes even a matter of life and death. So when someone says metaphorically that they've got a thirst for something rather, you know, whether it be, I've got a thirst for knowledge or a thirst for love, or a thirst for blood, if you know, you're a vampire or, or someone that way inclined. You know. Saying you have a thirst for something is very evocative, particularly if you live in a hot climate or an arid climate. And this is a metaphor which Jesus taps into in today's passage. Now, uh, we're continuing this morning our Term 2 series entitled The Appeal of God. And over recent weeks, we've been looking at ways where what God offers us is highly appealing. And uh, what we're getting up to today is the topic that God, Jesus, can quench our thirst. Not so much our thirst for water, but for something even deeper, something I want to refer to as a spiritual thirst. The thirst which people have, whether they realise it or not, for, for, for God and the things which go with knowing God. It's a thirst which many people realise they have. It's a thirst which many people don't realise uh, they have. They just have this vague feeling of, of thirst. Now, the passage we're going to focus on is John 4, as I said. An outline of the main points are on the screen behind me, but are also set out in more detail, as usual, on our insert. And firstly, I want to think about what we thirst for. Secondly, we're going to focus on John 4, the passage, and look at the offer of living water, which Jesus makes. And then finally, and briefly, you can lead a horse to water, dot, dot, dot. So that's where we're going. 
Can I start with the first point, what we thirst for? What do people thirst for? What, are they, what do we long for? What are those things that we ardently desire, those if-only things we have, which if only we had them, then everything would be so much better? Some people might sort of thirst for a holiday. Oh, I just need a holiday. They may thirst for that job. Really like that. They may thirst for that ideal home that they can picture in their mind. Or they may thirst for that particular person or that child or that grandchild. Those are all fairly tangible things. But we also thirst for, let's say, less tangible things. We may thirst for recognition. You know, I've got things to say and no one's listening to me. Um, we may thirst for acceptance or thirst for peace or, or purpose in life or, or security or comfort. Or, of course, we may thirst for, for love. And so often what we thirst for or long for is often tied up with uh, uh, relationships or key relationships. Because in a good relationship, of course, we can feel recognised, accepted, comforted, loved, supported, at peace, all those sorts of things, which the less tangible things we may thirst for as well. There was a wonderful song, or I think it was a wonderful song, out about 40 years ago by The Seekers. Some of you may know it or have heard of it. It's called A World of Our Own. Smile at me. Yeah, look, there's a few happy smiles, The Seekers. I threatened to sing it in the 8 o'clock service, but I didn't. But part of the, the Seekers song, A World of Our Own, goes, We'll build a world of our own that no one else can share. All our sorrows will leave far behind us there. And I'm sure you will find there will be peace of mind when we live in a world of our own. It's the idea of this, this couple sort of cordoning off the world, getting rid of all their troubles, leaving them behind, living in their own little world and finding peace of mind. The, the longing, the, the thirst there is for this close relationship, cutting out, guarding out all which is evil and finding peace of mind there. That is what that person is thirsting for. Now, um, often we're very conscious of those things we thirst for, that, that child, that grandchild, uh, but sometimes we thirst for things but we don't know what we're really thirsting for. Let me explain. Uh, someone may be very driven uh, to achieve success in their job or their business. Let's, let's say a, a man, let's say. They, and you said, what do you thirst for? I, I want to get to the top. I want to be successful in my business, my line of work. And on one level you could say they thirst for success in their job. But at another level, it may be that subconsciously there's a driver for them as well. Perhaps without their realising it, they're trying to earn the respect of their father. They've always wanted, they've thirsted for their father's respect and this is perhaps the thing they're doing to try and get it. And in some cases, this is, seems to be the case, and their father may have been dead for 10 or 20 years, but they're still you know, subconsciously striving for, or thirsting or longing for their father's recognition or, or respect. And other sorts of thirsts, thirsts, as I alluded to earlier, are perhaps a bit harder to define. People often have what I would call a general thirst or a general longing, a desire for something, you know, I can't quite put my finger on what it is, but I just feel that something's missing, that there must be a bit more, something I want, what is it? I, I can almost reach it, but I can't quite grasp what it is. Um, for reasons that will become obvious, I think we can sometimes refer to this as a, a spiritual thirst. It's usually what it is. So Casey, in her video, um, said that, you know, she wasn't particularly unhappy in life, but she said um, that she was searching, that she wasn't satisfied, that she wasn't content. Uh, that, there's someone, I guess, describing that sort of thirst for something. I don't quite know what it is, uh, that general sort of thirst. Now, I think Casey will conc has concluded that, that what that thirst for was, of course, a thirst for God. 
Newsweek magazine about 15 or 20 years ago uh, published a major cover story entitled God and the Brain, How We're Wired for Spirituality. Now, I, I've only read references to this, this magazine. I haven't actually seen the articles, but it's suggestive of the fact that we are created for some sort of spiritual encounter, some sort of encounter with God, some sort of relationship with God, this general yearning, thirst, longing. We're going to see how Jesus addresses that particular thirst, yearning, longing for one particular lady in John chapter 4, and this brings us to our second point, the offer of living water. Now, John chapter 4, of course, takes place about 2,000 years ago in Samaria. Samaria is in central Palestine, you know, Israel, the Middle East, uh, just north of Jerusalem. And it's a world which is, I guess, quite different to the world today, but there are many similarities in well in terms of people's, I guess, feelings. Now, the passage starts with what I would describe as an alarming encounter. Jesus is travelling from Jerusalem up towards Galilee. He goes through Samaria. He sits down by a well at about 12 noon. And we read in verse 7 of chapter 4, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Now, at this point, are you feeling alarmed? Are you feeling shocked? Are you experiencing horror and outrage at what I've just read out? You're not. You look, I've never seen you looking so calm. But if I'd read this out in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, people would have sort of thought, what? what you know, what's, what's going on there? You see, there would have been gasps of horror. Jesus has not done the ancient equivalent of pulling out a cigarette and saying to a girl at a party, have you got a light? You know, it's not like that. What Jesus has done is more like the equivalent of the son of some Ku Klux Klan heavyweight bringing home his new fiancée, who happens to be, Dad, meet my new fiancée, who happens to be an African-American girl. You know, you can imagine that, the shock, horror and outrage in a Ku Klux Klan family if that took place. It's a bit more like that. Why the shock, horror and outrage about this meeting? Well, Jesus is Jewish, male and respectable. The woman is Samaritan, female obviously and we quickly work out of suspect reputation or what the ancient world would have described as being of a suspect reputation firstly the racial issue jews and samaritans by and large hated each other's guts uh, you may you know, the parable of the good samaritan you know, the, the shocking thing about that parable is that a samaritan looks after someone who might a jewish person See, the Jews and Samaritans did not get on. Generally speaking, they hated each other. Let me give you one quote. Uh, one writer has observed that the Samaritans were publicly cursed in the synagogues and a petition was daily offered up praying God that the Samaritans might not be partakers of eternal life. That's interesting, isn't it? You're praying that people won't get eternal life. You've got to hate someone to do that. So there's this racial problem. Secondly, there's the gender issue. You see, uh, Jewish men generally did not speak to people, women in public. Here's a Jewish rabbinic citation from the period. This is not in the Bible. This is just Jewish thinking. It's, it says, One should not talk with a woman on the street, not even with his own wife, and certainly not with someone else's wife because of the gossip of men. So that was the attitude of many at the time. Now, the woman herself recognises the shock value of Jesus addressing her in the way he, she does. Uh, she says in verse 9, you know, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? You know, she's taken aback, it seems, by what Jesus has done. But there's even more as well, because Jesus was, at least in many people's view, a respectable Jewish teacher, and this woman 
was something of a social outcast, we gradually learn. Uh, we get a clue to this because she's getting water by herself in the middle of the day. The, the normal practice was that the women would go and get water from the well in the cool of the morning or the cool of the afternoon. Why is she going by herself in the middle of the day? Ooh, strange. We learn later facts about her life which would have made her a social outcast. So respectable social outcast. All these reasons why your average Jewish male would not have spoken to this Samaritan woman. But Jesus didn't feel constrained by such flawed, and they are flawed, social conventions. He isn't prejudiced. He's happy to cross such boundaries. Now, uh, the chapter before in John, John has, Jesus has spent time speaking to a respectable Jewish male called Nicodemus, which he was happy to do. Here he is speaking to a Samaritan female who many in her society would have considered was not respectable. He's happy to talk to her as well. Jesus is happy talking to anyone. And that makes an interesting point for us. Uh, really, we, if we're seeking to follow Jesus, should be prepared to cross boundaries and interact with anyone. We shouldn't think, oh, they're not my sort of person or they're below me or above me or different. You know, we should be prepared to interact with anyone. And similarly, uh, we should uh, reflect on the fact that Jesus is prepared to cross boundaries and meet with anyone. No one is the sort of person who Jesus isn't interested in who isn't interested in meeting, in interested in knowing. You may know someone, oh, Jesus would never be interested in talking to that person. They are such a bad person. Well, Jesus clearly is interested in talking to that person. If you ever thought yourself, oh, Jesus would never be interested in someone like me, if he, if he, if he knew the things that I've done or things that I've thought, well, he does know the things you've done and thought, and he is interested in meeting you, just in the same way that he was interested to meet Nicodemus and now this Samaritan woman. So Jesus crosses the boundaries, speaks to this woman, and then he makes a fairly engaging offer. He starts by offering the woman in verse 10 something which he describes as living water. Now the woman wonders how he can offer this because you know, the well's deep and he's nothing to draw with. She's thinking literally, but obviously Jesus is being a little more metaphorical here. He explains, verse 13, Everyone who drinks this water, indicating the water in the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So this living water, whatever it is, offers something good now, you'll never thirst again, and it offers something good in the future. It wells up to eternal life. Something for now, something for the future. Now what he's referring to here. Living water speaks of the eternally satisfying life that Jesus offers people. You know, relationship with him, the eternally satisfying life that Jesus offers people and all the benefits that go with it. That's what he's talking about when he says living water, but it hasn't quite twigged with the woman yet. She says in verse 15, So give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So she's still thinking, you know, literal water. Now, at this point, you know, she asked the question, give me some of it. I sometimes wonder what her motivation at this point is. I don't think she's being sincere. I think she's being a bit, you know, sceptical. It might have been, you know, good-humoured sceptical, like this is a fun little interchange we're having. Okay, I'll have some of your water. Give it to me. Or it might be a bit more cynical or nasty. Okay, mister, well, you put up or shut up, you know, give me this water. Who knows? But she asks the question. Then the tone of the conversation changes entirely entirely because Jesus then makes a disturbing revelation verse 16 he says to the woman 
go, call your husband and come back. Well, what's so disturbing about that? Verse 17, I have no husband, she replied. Ah, so this could be a uh, painful issue for her. But then Jesus continues, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. Bang. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, for a start, um, Jesus has displayed incredible knowledge about the details of her life. Now, the, impact, the impression we have is that it's just supernatural knowledge. He just knows all about her and her background. That's got to get your attention. And secondly, he's also highlighted what must have been a very painful subject for this woman. Well, I assume it was. Now, we don't know why she had five husbands and the person she was now with, you know, the sixth man, you know, why she had all these different partners. Had, they, had the husbands all died? Perhaps five husbands had all died, which is interesting. Perhaps all the men had divorced her. That's possible as well. Perhaps the combination of both. We don't know. I suspect it's probably more likely to have been she was divorced by these different men rather than there were five deaths. Whatever it was, though, it must have been painful. It must have been difficult. So why on earth would Jesus, who's supposed to be a nice bloke, why would he raise this awkward and painful subject? Now, we're not specifically told in the Bible why Jesus raises the subject, but let me give what I think are some reasonable assumptions. Firstly, uh, is when a person realises their area of need, I think it can wake them up to the bigger questions of life. So when someone's life is successful and busy, they're busy being successful and busy. They often don't start to contemplate, you know, God, life, the universe, everything else. Often it takes some uh, tragedy in life or life to go pear-shaped for someone to really screw something up in a, in a really bad way for the thinking cap to go on. Perhaps Jesus raises this issue to help her to start thinking about these bigger issues. But secondly, it's quite possible uh, that the woman had some general thirst, what I might call a spiritual thirst, you know, this desire for something rather, and perhaps she was trying to meet it through relationships or the ideal man or romantic encounters or maybe the men had that view of her and they were sort of searching for that the other way around. I mean, there was this relational desire or this romantic thrill which perhaps she was seeking. You know, if I could just find the right man or the right woman, everything would be so much better. Uh, many, I think, try to fill the spiritual thirst they have uh, with relationships. Now, Peter Brock uh, was an Australian race car legend. Very good driver. I never met him. He was probably a great guy. He, he presents as such in media interviews and things like this. But what I'm about to say, I'm not trying to sound nasty or judgmental about Peter Brock. I'm just setting out things which were pretty much on public record. Let me tell you a bit about Peter Brock and relationships. He first married in 1967 and that ended in divorce two years later. Then in 1974, he married Miss Australia in 1973 and that marriage lasted for one year. Then he entered into a relationship with a lady called Bev for 28 years. Uh, in effect, you know, they were married, in effect, although I don't think they actually had the ceremony. Uh, Bev was the wife of a member of his racing team initially. Uh, during his 28-year relationship with Bev, he apparently had, according to Bev, various affairs with people uh, with whom he worked. In 2005, they split up, Peter apparently telling Bev, I have plans for my future and I don't see any role for you in them. Uh, but he did have plans for Julie, uh, a family friend, who we then got together with her. And then you may know he tragically died in that racing accident, I think it was in 2006. Now, what do we make of that sort of life? 
Some men might sort of think, well, the accident aside where he dies, mate, this guy was living in the dream. You know, driving fast cars, had this one woman after another, mate, that sounds you know, great, some might think. Others, and probably my view, is, would suggest to me that perhaps, you know, this guy was searching for something rather which didn't quite satisfy, which he couldn't quite find, and in the process he was damaging a lot of people, including himself, and brought himself and others, I'm sure, quite a bit of sorrow in the process. I don't know, but it doesn't seem like those... It doesn't, it doesn't speak to me of a satisfied, <laughs> comfortable sort of life in that, in that area. Now, as wonderful as human relationships can be, they don't ultimately quench that thirst which we have for God. It isn't quite the living water uh, which God offers us. Anyway, Jesus offers the living water to this woman. He raises this, I guess, awkward issue for her. How does a woman respond? Verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Now, she's going to ask him a question. What sort of question do you think she's going to ask? She's going to say, well, she's going to say, tell me about this living water. How can I get it? What do I do? Or how can I better conduct my life? No, she says, our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. She raises a theological disagreement between the Samaritans and the Jews. Now, why does she do that? It could be that she thinks, wow, this guy is a prophet. I've always wondered about where we should worship God properly. And I'll ask him, this guy might know. Might have been a genuine question. Or it could be that it's a diversion. She may have been thinking, this passage is getting, this discussion is getting a bit sort of close to the bone. I think I'll try and divert him by asking him a, a question. Like today, if Jesus had had this discussion with her, she might have said, oh, I can see you are a prophet. Um, so what do you think of Israel Folau? You know, diversion, sort of question like that. Well, Jesus then actually responds to the question, but in a way which keeps attention on the offer of living water, uh, this thirst-quenching relationship which he's talking about. So John chapter 4, verse 21, Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you'll worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Verse 23, A time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. They are the kinds of worshippers the Father seeks. He's saying it doesn't matter where we worship God, whether it's Jerusalem or on that particular mountain or in Winmalee or in Africa or wherever, it doesn't matter where we are, the question is that we worship him in truth, that we drink the living water that he offers us. It doesn't matter where we worship him, but that we do. And here we have it, because this woman has actually taken quite a journey by the end of the passage. The woman who appeared to have initially no real spiritual interest, the woman who wasn't seeking Jesus appears by the end of chapter 4 to have become a follower of Jesus and to drink of the living water he offers. So let me take you through it. Start of the passage, the woman treats Jesus as just another man. By verse 19 she says, I can see that you are a prophet. By verse 29 she says to her townsfolk, could this be the Messiah? And then in verse 42 we read that the people of the village say that they too believe, suggesting that the woman believes, that he is the saviour of the world. Quite a journey which this lady has taken along with many of her townsfolk. One thing which this tells us is that we can never say that someone is not the sort of person who would ever receive this living water and become a follower of Jesus. I mean, if we'd been around in Samaria, we probably would have thought, oh, this woman, she's never going to become a follower of Jesus. No one ever falls into that category. God, in fact, makes a habit of calling people we might think would never come to him. But also, we should never think that if, if this applies to us, we should never think that we're not the sort of person who Jesus is interested in, 
who Jesus calls. Some people sort of think, oh, well, you know, if Jesus knew the bad things I've done, he'd never want me. Well, he does. Uh, no one is outside of Jesus' interest. Jesus is prepared to cross any boundary to meet someone. No one is too bad to turn to him to receive the living water that he offers. So let me briefly go to our third point, which is you can lead a horse to water. You know, the phrase, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink, basically indicates that you can give someone an opportunity for a cho- to make a choice, but you can't make the choice for them. It's up to them to do A or B. Now, later in John, in chapter 7, which was read out for us, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's offering people living water there. He says in verse 37 of chapter 7, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. And then in that passage we heard, some people sort of said, oh, he is the Messiah. Others thought, no, he's not. And in fact, some disliked him so much that they wanted to seize him. Similarly today, when Jesus offers people living water today, some people want it, some people don't want it, some people occasionally even get a little bit angry about it. But Jesus today offers everyone living water, a relationship with him. How do we receive it? We say to God, look, I'd love that living water. We receive it by asking him to forgive us and saying that we want to follow him. So if someone says, Jesus, look, this sounds great, this living water, please forgive me, I want to follow you, please give me that living water. (coughs) The promise of the Bible is that God will answer that prayer. So I guess the question is, where, where are we at? Have we received that living water? Have we taken that step of asking Jesus to forgive us and saying we want to follow him? If you haven't, well, do you want to? Let me leave that thought with you. Secondly, if we have, we're clearly we're grateful to God. But also, we need to realise that there are people in our, in our area, our friends, who also want that living water, even if they don't realise it. They may be trying to quench their spiritual thirst in other ways. Uh, Good to reflect on that. See, for some people in our society, like the Nicodemuses, their spiritual interest is very obvious. But perhaps for some who are more like the Samaritan woman, we might look at them and think that's the last thing they're interested in. But yet they still have that thirst. We shouldn't put anyone in the too hard basket, including ourselves. Let me conclude. Malcolm Muggeridge was a British journalist and author and World War II Secret Service agent. And later in life, he became a follower of Jesus, I've read. He once said as follows. Remember, this guy was quite a successful man. I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass for being a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fine. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the higher slopes of the inland revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heeded for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfilment. Yet I say to you, and I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing, a positive impediment measured against one draught of that living water Christ offers to the spiritual thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. There's someone who was very satisfied with the spiritual water from which he drank. 
Jesus says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your word and what we've been reflecting on this term at church and what we've seen in the passage this morning. Lord, you offer us, all of us, uh, living water, a water which can quench our spiritual thirst and that can satisfy us. Lord, we do thank you for that. Lord, we uh, pray that if um, perhaps we're sitting here today, someone who hasn't received that living water, that we would um, genuinely consider whether we would wish to take that step and uh, perhaps seek help. And Lord, if we have taken that living water, Lord, we thank you for that, that our lives are different because of it. And Lord, we thank you that that water is also for everyone in our society, around us. But Lord, we do pray that we would hold out that offer to people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.